one of the real challenges we have yeah. is to get people to think about what is the grams of digestible lysine intake per day, per day. by phase. Mm -hmm. And then in most cases, we don't know the feed intake very well. And we're, we're very comfortable saying, you know, we feed 1.4% right. digestible lysine. But what we really need to be looking at is 18 grams of digestible lysine in the first phase and about 24 grams in the latter phases. Right. And then you back into what is that as a percent of the diet. Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high quality, safe and sustainable way. Alonco's Prevacent, a new perspective. Visit PrevacentPERS.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Welcome to Swining Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about NutriQuest. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by servitude and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technologies and efficient operation. Well, let's get rolling then. Uh, like you and I discussed, we don't have any uh, set plans here for today but i just want to get your brain in a few different areas you know um one thing uh that i think probably sparked uh, uh the conversation a while back uh, i think it was an instagram post about um lysine to calorie ratio uh what are your thoughts there i know um in late finishing i believe you, you mentioned that that's probably not as important if i recall correctly any memories on on that arena yeah, the, you know, obviously calorie protein ratio is a pretty fundamental part of pork production and swine nutrition. At the same time, you know, I, as you continue to work with that, one quickly recognizes it's not an absolute defined relationship. It's got more wiggle room in the ratio. And sometimes by moving it down to say the 98% instead of the 100%, may be really cost saving and you're not gonna pick up those differences. Right. And so the concept is absolutely real. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of uh, how much precision one puts into it. Now, more recently, we've been doing some work with amino castration and some of those kind of activities and how that fits. And you, so you start to say, how critical is maintaining that ratio when all of a sudden you've altered feed intake curves so dramatically and lean deposition patterns so dramatically. Mm -hmm. And and so that that's really where you have to stop and say the question that stays the same, maybe the answer is different. Right, right. No, that's that's completely 
fair. And if you think about some of the other nutrients, right? Uh, and and it, it goes all, all I think I'll always go back to that uh, dim, diminishing returns, right? The, the 98 versus 100. Yeah, it's probably not a whole lot of difference there from a licensed calorie. Start moving, say, the tryptophan lysine ratio from 18 to 19 or up to 20. All of a sudden, you've got real economic impact and you say, has it really done much for me, you know? And, and so I, I think that's one of the, the struggles that I have with it. The concept is real, but how precise of confidence do we have in those ratios? Right, right. Yeah, I, I, some of my work was on tryptophan, right? And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, if, if, if one is trying to capture a gain, right? Uh, on uh, on summertime and uh, those sorts of things. Maybe if pig price is good, but when pig price is low, it's a little hard to to justify some of that. Um, you mentioned monocastration, Dr. Pomum. Uh, what what? So what's the latest there from from what you've been working on? Well, you know, when I retired a few years ago from Smithfield Foods, and you start to ask yourself, what do you want to do when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And in, in my case. <laughs> work to me was hobby. It was pleasure and it was enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I would continue to do some consulting work and work in areas that I was really intrigued with and felt like that there was some gaps. Mm-hmm. And back in my days at Smithfield, we started to use Infravest and had just watched all the commotion that existed around that. And in many cases thinking it's such a good technology, but we've had so much pushback in that area. Uh, and so uh, I have been working uh, on that project for the last few years, and it's really exciting. And particularly now that the, the guilt approval has been accepted uh, mm. for temporary suppression of estrus. Wow. And, and then so how do you, and obviously the, the aspect of immunological castration uh, for males and males still having testicles cause some uncertainty, particularly by the processing segment. Uh, right. Tell you maybe a bit of a funny and interesting story. When we first started to talk about the use of uh, the product, uh, I was working with a colleague who was our primary pig buyer, and I was telling him that what would happen, and he tried to explain the science and the benefits to an integrated system. Mm-hmm. And the pork buyer looked at me and he says, if they've got testicles, it's a $40 discount. What part of that don't you understand? Uh, and that was kind of the starting point in the discussion is uh, uh, it wasn't a matter of how functional the testicle was or how much testicular suppression we had. Right. Is the presence of a testicle was a discount. Uh-huh. And that was just the paradigm that it, we started with. And so it required a lot of effort. But I, I think today... Uh, it's been particularly interesting as I've had an opportunity to have some global experience with the product now. I've spent some time in Australia. I've interacted with the, the Thais, uh, worked with the Europeans, worked with the Canadians. And it's a product that has such good science and now just a matter of getting the value proposition worked out correctly and getting over the potential opposition to it, uh, especially in the mail. Now, the female doesn't require any kind of approval because it's viewed as like a vaccine. And, it, and with the male, it requires a certification process and an establishment and acceptance before it's allowed to pigs can be purchased as an amino castrate or what's called an IC barrel. So we've continued to work on what are the nutritional requirements? 
How do they differ? What is the timing of the pig's post-second dose and how that impacts it? And then uh, where do you really see the value proposition? Right. Yeah, it's always... Uh... It's always be interesting to watch. Like you said, Australia is using and Brazil is also using massively there. Yeah, Brazil is a big user. Yeah. Uh, and probably another thing that's really happening now is with the banning of castration in Europe. People are recognizing they can't have a production system and have reasonable product trying to produce an, an entire male population. And the idea of trying to use genetics to select for less bore taint and some of those kind of things is a slow, cumbersome process. And uh, the use of immunological castration is, is a good method. And so what you see today happening is a major scale up, especially in Germany uh, with immunocastration, just because they're recognizing the, the entire male is not a very viable s solution. And especially when you put anesthesia on part of castration, if they're going to castrate, they have to do it with some sort of anesthesia that requires anesthesia before castration and two days of pain-free post-castration. Mm. And with those guidelines, you know, anesthesia is not going to be acceptable practice. But it, it's just one of those learning processes to help people understand, you know, in some early or customer work showed that 50% of the consumers didn't even know castration occurred. Uh -huh. <laughs> And only 1% were even aware of amino castration. And so, I mean, we've got this wow. wide array of knowledge of what is typical production systems. But, you know, uh, it, from my standpoint in my career, I don't believe I've seen many things that you can tell people that you can consistently see uh, in the mail, uh, a 5 to 7% improvement in gain and an 8 to 12% improvement in feed efficiency. Right. And, and I mean, those kind of improvements don't come along as we do research today. Right. And so those are the kind of benefits one can get to it, but it requires a lot more challenging for implementation. You know, I have to tell people that the, the juice is worth the squeeze here. It's, it's not adding another amino acid or something to the feed. It requires uh, adjustments in flows and adjustments in feeds, adjustment in marketing schedules and all those kind of things. Right. But the value proposition is there if people are prepared to take it. Now with the guilt clearance, particularly, you see a heavier weight guilt. Mm. And, and you know, at least in the U.S. systems, uh, we know that guilts tend to be lighter and they tend to be the ones that are discounted. And then so, you know, you're pushing carcass weights up on guilts. Uh, probably six to eight pounds uh, and and you're just shifting the guilt growth curve to be more similar to the male and so you have more uniformity between the genders in the packing plan so you have more uniform product and you push the guilt carcass into the more primal values you get a little more marbling and such and so the guilt loin is worth more particularly in the export market it does bring a little bit more back fat and you have to make sure that you get your timing post-second dose right uh, or pigs may get too fat and too big and you start to lose some of the value proposition that erodes post-second dose if you don't watch it closely. Interesting. Uh, is that because uh, some of the guilts could be presenting uh, heat and then low feed intake or no? Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. And, you know, some survey work that's been done on that, you know, and 
uh, you have to first define how are you going to detect ovarian activity in a market yield, right? Mm -hmm. And our typical methods in GDU barns is not effective, very effective even for replacement females, let alone to say, is the, is the ovary been turned on? And so we've done a series of uh, surveys uh, going in and collecting the ovary and the reproductive tracts and then scoring those and trying to confirm what kind of ovarian activity we have. And in some of the survey work that Tim Zabransky has been involved with in part of doing the studies for us at the University of Missouri is showing that we can have as much as 15% of the gilts that have ovarian activity. And when we got ovarian activity, we're going to see gilt feed intakes being decreased and also nutrients being partitioned toward reproductive tract development. And so as you do this temporary suppression, you just keep all those nutrients flowing to lean growth and tissue growth and not necessarily to growth for the reproductive tract. So some pretty interesting stuff. Yes. And, and, and even into Europe, because they've had entire males in their pens, they're seeing a higher incidence of, they call it unwanted pregnancies. Mm. And, and so they're getting a number of gilts that are coming in that are carrying embryo uh, into processing. <laughs> and, and so, you know, uh, then they start to try to separate sex and some of those kind of things become a really a challenge. Right. I think one of the real things that uh, we've just come upon that I think has been very, very interesting uh, in the past to use the product that we really struggled trying to figure out how to get the, the animal flows to fit. And today, uh, what we find if we use mixed gender, both treating the males and the females in the same pen, okay. it just makes a lot of sense because you take the males out first, mm -hmm. you leave the gilts in a little longer. Right. You don't have to have separate sex feeding programs. You feed the gilts the same program you feed the males. And when you get through, you just have a, a lot more calories or a lot more pounds of pork produced per uh, finishing space. Yeah. So it's some really pretty neat technology. Wow. See, I heard that a uh, few systems down in South America were, were uh, playing a little bit with guilt side of things for a few years now, but then it's, I didn't know it was, it had been approved here. So that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. It, it was officially approved about the 1st of April. Okay. And unfortunately with the COVID situation has slowed down the communications of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we continue to do testing you know, the fundamental question is, does the guilt require different feeding programs uh, that yeah. see uh, the product? Right. Uh, and what does that mean in the way of carcass composition and pork quality? And, uh, and particularly one test that we're getting ready to do, because the male data is very clear that we see uh, post four weeks, post second dose, we start to see a pretty large reduction in feed efficiency because the males are really laying down a lot of fat at that point mm -hmm. and you start to lose feed efficiency benefits. So you might lose say a percent, percent and a half per week post fourth week. Uh, and so if you wait and kill pigs at nine, 10 weeks as the uh, clearance is, you start to give up a lot of your feed efficiency benefits. So Mm -hmm. The concept is, you know, try to get all the pigs to market by seven weeks post-second dose, and the males have got to get out first. Okay. And so with a mixed-gender program, you 
uh, take say 50% out on the first grade and then a few weeks later take a few males and a few females out and then when you do your run out at say seven weeks mm-hmm. you empty the barn and uh, you get more total pounds produced per square foot of finishing and you just continue to manage that in the system. Now the pushback then is going to be is will a packer accept right. uh, the infrabest treated male? Right. And I was going to ask you, so a lot of the pushback, I guess, from the packers, maybe beyond the, the task that you mentioned, it's probably, hey, what is the perception of the consumer? But, but like you already mentioned, the data there is like, eh, doesn't sound like the consumer word too much, but, but it's definitely as time goes over, consumers, they want to know more about their fee, their, yeah, where their food is coming from, right? So what's your take there? Well, you know, uh, I, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles we have in our business is how do we be receptive to unique requests of the industry and still be able to be sustainable and make the money that you need to. And that's the right. real balancing act of our industry. Exactly. Uh, now, you, even when you go to Australia, you know, it's a whole different approach there because they kill pigs at a little lighter weight and castration has been illegal for a long time. And, and so what happens there, the pork processor just tells the producer, if you don't get these pigs on InfraVest, we're not going to be able to take your pigs anymore because of the tank problems. Mm. And so it's just the exact opposite of what we see in the U.S. where the packer says, we can't take your pigs unless you do this. Right. Where in the U.S. they say, I'm sorry, we can't take it. But I, I think the floodgates will open. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that there's a lot of paranoia about it. And I think what's going to happen with the new guilt clearance is the guilt market share will probably increase dramatically faster. And then they're going to see the benefit of the guilt value. And the guilt value is only about uh, 75% of the actual value you see when it's used in the mail. Mm. So the mail really gives you value proposition. A good example might be you might get five bucks a pig in the mail and uh, three and a half bucks of net value in the guilt. Mm-hmm. Wow. And did you say, uh, does feed efficiency change in the guilt as well or not? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And the, the meta-analysis that's been done in the gilts is not particularly clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of that is when the meta-analysis is done, the timing post-second dose is so highly variable. So we're trying to confirm some of that. We have, have some uh, more recent tests that show that we will see probably a three to 4% improvement in feed efficiency at the same time we're getting the heavier carcass weights. But for sure you get the heavier carcass weights and that's what really drives the value proposition is that extra carcass weight and right. less discounts on the gilt carcass. And the feed efficiency uh, is just a little bit more of the value. But the feed efficiency is not as evident in the gilt as it is in the male. Right. Okay. And then the male, last time I saw a meta-analysis, if I recall correctly, it was about a 27% higher uh, lysing uh, percentage. For example, let's say if you are 1% in a regular barrel, you'd be at 1.27% lysing in a, in a male. Uh, but I don't know, does the, is that on the ballpark or... Well, you know, that's been probably one of the most challenging questions to respond to. What you said is correct. And we actually released some 
nutritional guidelines about five years ago that clearly said, you know, we need to be about 125% the value mm -hmm. that was typically fed in castrates. But what's happened is the amino acid density levels in castrates have gone up. And as that's gone up, it's probably not 25% greater than the new value for uh, castrates. And so one of the real challenges we have yeah. is to get people to think about what is the grams of digestible lysine intake per day, per day. by phase. Mm -hmm. And then in most cases, we don't know the feed intake very well. And we're, we're very comfortable saying, you know, we feed 1.4% right. phosphorus, but what we are uh, digestible lysine. But what we really need to be looking at is 18 grams of digestible lysine in the first phase and about 24 grams in the latter phases. Right. And then you back into what is that as a percent of the diet. Yes. And often we formulate obviously as a percent of the diet. Right. And those are the numbers we want to know. And then we assume that we understand yeah. intake. Oh yeah, and, and so yeah, the guidelines are hard to establish, and it's better to think about the grams of digestible lysine more than the percent of the diet. And typically, the 125 percent today on standard castrate feed programs would be too much. Yeah, it's probably going to be closer to 10 to 15. Ah, okay, just because the baseline increase. Yeah, no, you are commenting grams per day makes total sense, and. And I, you know, uh, that's that's a good one, right? And, and it's looking at intake, but but it's not looking at gain, right? So, grams of grams of lysine per kilogram of gain, is that which the rule of thumb is twenty, right? Twenty grams, uh, is is that different for for intact males? No, it stays about the same. Yeah, which is which, yeah, it's it phenomenal, is, right? It's a, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the, the biology that we're dealing with, and. Right. And, and the uncertainty and what happens is we see less intake in the intact male early on compared to the castrates. Mm. And then they continue to have a linear increase in intake where the, the barrels are going to plateau mm. at, say, 180, 200 pounds, okay. uh, where we continue to see linear increases in intake uh, with intacts and infrabest treated males and females. Very interesting. It's super cool. I mean, look at this number. I remember doing a lysine study in lactation and even the amount of grams of lysine per kilogram of uh, liter gain, I believe was, was also in the ballpark. So it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's a Whoever designed that was pretty dang smart. Right? <laughs> yes. Um, how about the objection around uh, personal safety when implementing uh, immunocastration? And, you know, initially that was a major concern because there was concern that the product could be uh, affecting worker health. And it's like any other vaccine that is given. When you get a, a needle prick, you got to get the person treated, evaluated, and kind of the methods have been is if somebody gets pricked, they go off the vaccination crew for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And generally, they're not getting a full dose. You know, they're only getting uh, just a, a bit of a partial dose. And so, uh, it has—it's been more of an emotional issue than a real concern. Right. It's—it's it's something you have to be sensitive to. But to say that it's—it's it's been an obstacle, it certainly has not been. Right. Is there any statistics on the hey, one out of a million doses applied, or something along those lines at all? That you were aware of. Oh, there is, but it, it it's it's like very, very 
absolutely small. And so to say one out of a million, I'm not sure what it is, okay, but okay. It, it's just, it's pretty much a non-existent event. Okay. And I would guess, you know, uh, people are sensitive to it. And so it's just not reported and it's not happening. And I would suspect we probably see more needle pricks with routine antibiotic and vaccines than we see with that product. Right. Okay. And then, uh, the, does uh, Zoetis still holds the patent or how does that work uh, these days? Yes, Zoetis holds the patents on it. Okay, okay. Uh, all right. Is there a timeline on that or you don't know? Because yeah, the cost the timelines is a- were there and, you know, uh, I'm sure that other product like that will potentially emerge. Mm-hmm. You know, there's interest in, in other, what they call anti-hormone vaccines mm-hmm. where people are, attempting to vaccinate for uh, somatometan or somatotropin mm-hmm. and trying to get those kind of effects uh, through a vaccination process. And I think that's a little bit of the new frontier. Interesting. You know, they're, they're not hormones, they're not antibiotics, and, and they're really adjusting the regulation of the body. Super interesting. Wow. Yes. Very good. Um, Something else that I want to touch base was the um, uh, throughout your career, any anything that you've experienced or believe that that you that many other people disagree. So you know something that that you based on data that you've seen or or your own experience, something that you'd like. Hey, you know, uh, here's something that most people probably disagree with me, but I. Uh, but I truly believe any, any, anything on that arena or no? Well, one that comes to mind uh, really has to do with production systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in my career, I spent time in academia and also in the feed industry and R and D and then also in operations management. And, and so about the time I started to get into pork production operations it was a pretty major move into contract finishing and contract production. And as I sat through various committee meetings at the port board, it was always trying to have total inclusive involvement and to make sure everybody felt good. And the independent producer was felt involved and we needed to keep the family on the farm. And, you know, I think one of the paradigm shifts for me was, is that, contracting could keep the family on the farm because it took away many of them's challenges with financial stability. They had, a, they had an asset in place. They could get a reasonable return on their investment. They were good at pig care, but they just didn't have the financial security to absorb the ebbs and flows of our industry. So that's probably one that I, you know, there was a lot of controversy over integration and integrator involvement and contract production. And today to see uh, what percent of the market has moved that way is, has just been astounding. And, you know, as we're particularly as we're facing low profits today and uncertainty about future, we know that there's got to be some adjustments in our systems. And every time we get to this fork in the road, uh, it, it usually results in learning and improvement, efficiency, and consolidation. And uh, the weak cannot survive 
and so I, I guess that would be one of them for sure uh, that I experienced was just the whole movement into large scale uh, production and still having the family on the farm through contracting and a lot of them have become very, very good and they can have a good living for themselves. Right. And many of them want a, a finishing barn so that they can capture the nutrients to exactly. use on in their corn production and it just makes for really good sense. And then they get a, a reasonable return on their capital. It's a predictable return and they can go to a, a lender and the lender says, if you've got a contract with this organization, mm -hmm. I'll give you money. Mm -hmm. you know, because you've got somebody that'll stand behind you and that their history has been really well established. So that's been probably one that I've seen a, a change of tide in the truest sense, going from controversy to, to today's norm. Yes. Yes. That is, that's very interesting. Uh, definitely, definitely tend to agree on that arena. As we know in this tough times that we've been through recently, um, many small producers, independent, went under, right? From a business standpoint, any top ideas there as far as like, hey, here are a few things that I sh you should consider um, in order to that not happen to, to someone else again in the, in the future? Any, from a business yeah, that's, standpoint? That's a, that's a great question. And the reality is that that bottom 10% just, they, they are the weak link of the chain mm -hmm. and they, they, they either got to get out of business or somebody else has got to own the business. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, there are some people there that are very good producers, but just have too much financial risk and cannot remain competitive. They're, they just can't keep the cash flow going. And so one thing I would really encourage people to do is really do a, a gut check to say, the assets I have, are they very meaningful? Are they just obsolete? Uh, can they be retrofitted into something that's desirable? And if they are, uh, how do I align myself to reduce my risk so that my family isn't jeopardized uh, when the ebbs and flows of the industry come? Right. It's interesting to see because, for example, what happened now with the, say, restaurants, right, that their revenue went down by well, 60% or something, which is for most industry that that's the craziest time, even for pig production. But, you know, with the ups and downs of uh, pig prices over the years, that's, that's a normal year, you know what I mean? At least from ups and downs, it's so volatile, which makes you need a lot of cash and, and access to capital, I think, just to continue. Yeah, and I think the, if we continue to look to the poultry industry as a template for future success, is really important and you know the poultry industry continues to consolidate as well there's better alignment between processing uh, meat production and distribution and production than what we see in the pork industry and so there's a dire need to strengthen the relationship within our pork chain and frankly even working in an integrated system the relationships there are sometimes very difficult to say, how do we divide the value that we create? Mm. You know, it's a fairly siloed business. You get judged on what you do in processing. I get judged on what I do in production and there's not much sharing of success. And so we're, 
we have lots of sub-optimization going in the business model. Mm. <laughs> that's... And so as we start to eliminate that sub-optimization, that's when we start to compete more effectively with the poultry industry because they're, they're just 20 years ahead of us in doing that. Wow. Yeah, I love that word, sub-optimization by silo, like you mentioned, right? Each silo is pretty good at what they do, but as an overhaul, sometimes... Uh, not necessarily, and I know you've you've done um, you've you've been very uh, in tune with uh, innovation right over the years, and I want to share something with you and, and get your thoughts. I, I was listening to one of Elon, uh, Elon, Elon Musk's interview of a while back, and he was mentioning how SpaceX innovate because there are eight thousand people, and he mentioned something about um, if someone fails. Uh, you're going to have a small penalty, you know, not a big deal. If someone don't innovate, then that there's a big penalty. And if you do innovate, there's a big bonuses, you know? So I'm thinking, wow, he didn't share any numbers, but I, I'm like, wow, I mean, that's the kind of, because everything goes back to, to incentives, you know? Yeah. So I'm, yes. so I'm just, I'm still digesting that, but uh, that's, that's straight from, from the tap because I think those folks there that are doing phenomenal innovation in a small amount of time and putting NASA to, eating NASA for breakfast, if you will, which is amazing. So like, what can we learn from there and try to implement in our, you know, our industry? Yeah, and I think the, the Tesla model is very intriguing to watch. You know, and I think early on, many of us thought it was, uh, another car company, mm -hmm. but it really is a data company. It oh, really yeah. is a system and they happen to sell cars, but all the intangibles that circle their car business is where the value rests. And in, in pig production, we kind of have some of those same opportunities. You know, we, we think ourselves as in the pig production, but then we have to start to say, what other parts of this business can we leverage and further enhance? Right. Uh, and at the same time, that's, that's challenging. And that is an obstacle that we all have to kind of work through. And there's a tendency for us all to kind of blaze the same trails and the inbreeding coefficient is very high mm -hmm. uh, in swine nutrition and swine production. And so we all tend to follow the same rabbit trails. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what we've got to continue to ask ourselves is how do we do it more efficient and better and also aligned with, uh, customer needs without having and trying to influence the customer without having uh, things imposed on us that they're not prepared to accept. You know, a, a good example is some of the organic uh, farming practices and some of the GMO production practices and some of those uh, meeting gap one standards, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, you say, are you really prepared to spend 30, 40% more money on pork that you really can't differentiate anything other than you have the certification to say they were raised this way? How sustainable is that truly? Right. And, and so I think that's one of the challenges and it goes back to, you know, we started raising antibiotic free pigs, oh, what, 20 years ago. Hmm. And it was done primarily, I'm gonna call it a, a loss leader you know, is to keep somebody out from getting into your space. And so you could say, yeah, we have that too. And you weren't going to make any money on it, 
but you had to say, we got one too, so somebody didn't come in and try to inhibit your, your chain in the truest sense. Okay. But in that time, you know, I can't recall if we ever made any money wow. in the 15 years on antibiotic free production wow. because they wanted a little bit of the loin, a little bit of the, the ham, and you couldn't sell enough of the pig to justify it. The cost of production was higher. Uh, and you had to sell it for 25% more than what it was worth. Now there was a middle ground that worked really quite well and that was called all natural. So you could put some quote marketing features, you could have your pork story in place, your cost of goods was comparable, and then you could charge 10, 15% more in the meat case. And that was, that was a win-win deal. And so some of that money came back to production because you had to adjust some of your production methods mm -hmm. for those uh, special production requests. Wow. Uh, would you say that today uh, antibiotic feed production would still be on the break even or losing or no, that, that uh, something has changed, the premium has changed, some folks are probably making money? I, I, would, I don't know is probably the fair answer, okay. but my, my gut instinct is uh, will they make a 15 to 20% in, uh, return on investment consistency? I'd say absolutely not. Okay. Okay. And, and, you know, uh, now a lot of those systems are set up where they'll transfer actual production cost and cost of goods into the meat, and then they try to capture that in the marketplace. And so, you know, somebody goes into Whole Foods and says, I want to buy antibiotic-free pork. They look at the meat case and say it's 25% more. They're going to make a decision to say, is that higher cost worth more in the perception that it's healthier? Right. In the thoughts on how can the industry communicate better with consumers and i know that's a tough one right everyone's trying everyone's trying to do that but like you said you back to the your tesla example which is uh incremental innovation versus uh radical innovation for example many folks in our industry or associations have no idea what tiktok is and i know tiktok's from china so it's being banned but even instagram stories or instagram reels or that kind of stuff okay well maybe that's what i don't know i'm just brainstorming here as i ask you you know yeah i i don't know really and you know some of this new revelation that the pork board has recently produced about consumer acceptance and some of those things of how we're the fourth rated protein today with consumers I think is a reality check for the industry. And I think in the past, we primarily focused on eating experience and some of the other components of customer satisfaction mm -hmm. have been gleefully ignored. And so I think we really, pork producers can't solve that problem, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just outside their mentality and they need somebody to, that they can have confidence in and give them direction and input at the same time, the producers need to give input back to the retailer and the consumer of what this will do to the cost of food if it gets imposed. Uh, and, and so I think that's, that's the ongoing dialogue that needs to occur. And I think independent organizations like the National Pork Board, the National, uh, the NPPC, for instance, those organizations have an important role in speaking in behalf of the industry as well as under and speaking for pork producers. But, uh, you know, it, it's just been one of my pet peeves over the years to see pork consumption continue to remain flat and 
uh, poultry consumption to have an in, a linear increase for the past 10 or 15 years. Right. And, and, and then we kind of live and die on how much of our product is exported. And, and so, you know, that over-reliance on the export market uh, without some certainty is very challenging. I'll share with you one quick story. Back when the Chinese first started to buy pork from the U.S., what they would do is they'd say, we're going to buy pork for the first quarter of next year. Your bid is due such and such day. You submit your bid, and they, you'd give them a yes or a no on that bid. Okay. Uh, and then that's all the business you'd have with that organization until the next bid came up for the next quarter. So wow. one quarter you had a bunch of product that would go and the next quarter you had no product that would go. And we all know wow. with pig production, we cannot manage flows on quarterly forecasts. No. And, and so it, we needed to have a more consistent uh, demand to be able to absorb the increase we have. Now, the Japanese have got it figured out. You know, mm. they know that they can't produce pork as cost-effective. They can bring a better product in. They're going to buy so much product a year. They're consistent buyers. You can rely on the Japanese accounts. Interesting. There's other export markets where, when a disease goes through, you got to fill a gap for them. Mm. You know, and then when the disease is fixed, you've accelerated your production to fill their gap, and then you're sitting with overproduction. Right. And, and so, at some point. That's a that's a bit of the insanity kind of equation in my mind. How long do we continue to chase that rabbit? You know, right? Wow, it's probably a tough one, right? To say, hey, no, I don't want to do quarterly. I want to do yearly. But they that goes back to bargain. What you bargain? Well, power. even when uh, the Chinese purchased Smithfield, you know, I thought at some point that would mean more consistent exports because you're shipping it to your right parent company but didn't that just never did materialize now a little bit's going and it's consistent but it, it's not enough that will you can even establish the foundation of future roots in your industry you know interesting has have you perceived any change in, in the u.s industry after that purchase well not really uh, a lot of paranoia <laughs> existed you know that was probably the the, it was the fear aspect mm -hmm. and you know it was just it was the whole mixing of cultures you know the culture clash that came about is to say now our new parent company are chinese owned and they don't understand us we can't communicate with them and their their tendency was to micromanage everything oh really wow uh, and an example would be is they you'd get a, an email to say send to me all the SOPs you use in a sow farm. And you say, all? Whoa. And so then you start packaging up 400, 500 pages of materials. Holy moly. And then two or three weeks later, you'd get an email to say, on page 286, paragraph three, what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, and so you, you got some of this micromanagement that was going, which is very much a culture clash because mm -hmm. On, I didn't even know it was on page 286. You know, that was one of those things that somebody much more talented, much more capable than me was preparing and implementing those procedures. And I was just fulfilling their request to get them the requested information, right. not so much to interpret what was written in cowboy English right. uh, for somebody in Oklahoma uh, so that they can understand it in China, you know. Right. Wow. 
Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system, designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we uh, get close to wrapping up here, Dr. Pullman, any recent books or people that you've been following inside the industry, outside the industry that, that really caught your attention in the last few years? Well, I'm an avid reader and I enjoy life and I like to read a balance of things. I like to do personal development, even at this stage. I like to read biographies. Nice. I'd like to follow the business trade. I like to follow developments in the industry. Uh, and I always believe that if I can read something that somebody that has contributed to society, it will stimulate me to work harder to do the same. And so that's really some of my passions in life is to give back. And you get to the stage in life where you can kind of choose what you want to do and who you want to work with and how you want to help. And it's an interesting stage of life, you know, and the, the corporate pain in the neck you had from the monthly conference calls and the two hour business meetings and uh -huh. things like that, just go away. Uh -huh. And frankly, you can spend a lot more valuable time with your loved ones and things that you enjoy and you do in life to sharpen the saw and to give back. And that's, that's really been a fulfilling stage. So that's probably a long answer <laughs> to a very good question. Yeah. And I, I, my, it still drives my wife a bit crazy to think that I need to get in to check my email and uh, uh -huh. read what's happening on the news and uh, do some of those kind of things. But I think that's really what life is about is right. continuing to keep fresh and to continue to challenge the things that you believe to be true and how they affect life. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, so two questions there. One is, I was in a phone with a friend two days ago that he's about to retire, but he was like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, like, I don't know what, uh, I don't even know what I'm going to do when I retire because a lot of us work hard. You know, that's all our life to be working kind of deal. Right. Mm -hmm. So what for you, and you already mentioned some of that, but any other insight when you transition to retirement, what, you know, a lot of the type A personalities have a hard time to, 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 to right. stop full stop. Any, any insights there? Well, I personally believe it's really critical to do an uh, introspective evaluation and to say, what really do you want to do that makes you happy? And in our case, we wanted to provide service to others. We wanted to spend time with family mm -hmm. and we wanted to travel. Nice. And all of those things require you have good personal health, you have the financial whereabouts to do it and that you kind of suck it up and roll with the punches because a lot of that stuff is painful. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, for instance, we were in Dubai when COVID hit. And, okay. and so we were told, you know, you may not get out of this country, you know? Wow. wow. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, those are the things you just have to learn to roll with the punches and move on with life. And so 
to me, I think it's really a matter of looking at retirement as a new stage in life to say, do more of what you've enjoyed and get rid of the pain in your life. And so what I enjoy is I enjoy interacting with people. I enjoy helping people. Frankly, I enjoy going out and working with my fruit trees and with my garden and People are going to think I'm crazy, but I kind of like mowing the lawn. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> the smell of fresh grass is production, you know? I love and that. I mean, uh, and it's maybe the farm boy roots in us, but, you know, I can spend two or three hours on the phone and then in the afternoon uh, go out and enjoy the outdoors or go to my grandson's football game or soccer game. I love it. Or uh, go fishing with my brothers or do the kind of things in life. Yes. Or, and my wife's always got a trip that we're, we're planning to do. And so nice. uh, with COVID, it's just taken some time in our life to say, okay, we've got a time out. Let's get ready for the next phase. Mm-hmm. And so there's, uh, that's what's occurring now is you get ready for what are we going to do next? I love it. I love it. That's, that's very enlightening, no doubt. And it's, a, it's definitely a tough uh, transition for, for a lot of people in and I think you got the right uh, it is. the right approach right and you know and I, I would tell people and I've had a number of friends say what do you think about consulting and I say did you enjoy what you're doing before you retired uh-huh. <laughs> and there's probably things you did and just keep doing more of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. if you enjoyed R&D or if you enjoyed writing or whatever it is do that kind of thing uh, and to me that's really been fun and so the The companies I've enjoyed working with are the people that I enjoyed working with before. Many of the clients I have today are a few of them are new and some of them are upstart biotech companies that are looking for help with R&D. And then another one might be pretty advanced progressive production systems that want you to come in with their strategic planning and help with their human capital development programs or mm-hmm. define improvements in their R&D program where they They have a problem and they just don't have the time or the resources to put energy into solving the problems. Right. And that's fun. But at the same time, you can't retire to be a full-time consultant. That's not where it's at. Not the good. You know, no, it's not a good combination for me, you know, but at the same time, right. uh, it's been a, a good fallback. And at the same time, it's certainly allowed us to, uh, you may know, we spent 18 months as missionaries in Thailand. Wow. And, The things that we learned in the swine industry had absolute relevance uh, as missionaries in Thailand. Now, we weren't proselyting missionaries. We were there as public affairs personnel. And the objective was to inform a non-Christian nation about Christ and and to set stage for uh, how we could help. And so the most common question is, what can we do to help you? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were involved in humanitarian projects distributing wheelchairs, building water systems, helping with eye clinics and dental clinics, and doing neonatal care training of uh, professionals, uh, donating computers and uh, overhauling orphanages and uh, building work opportunities for people with disability, you know, just phenomenal learning experiences and a chance to give back because we've been blessed. And Uh, and uh, but the same exact leadership principles used in research and in operations management mm-hmm. and in teaching applied in that service opportunity. The pace was just drove me crazy, and the organization was even drove me crazy. 
but that was why I was there is to learn to adapt to a new culture. Wow. And how many years ago was that? We've been home about two years now. Okay. Amazing. Wow. And, and so to step away from the industry for a year and a half and just take that dive was a great experience. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter what they do. We often have a number of colleagues that do mission programs and I applaud those wholeheartedly or whatever that passion is. I have another friend that has been involved in Africa where they helped them establish meaningful employment opportunities, uh, maybe place a, a heifer or a guilt in that environment and help them grow their livestock business. Mm. Another business was helping them produce crickets that could be used wow. to sell to fishermen or for protein. And, and so, you know, somebody in a small family could set up a, a cricket operation wow. and put uh, food on their table and, and just an incredible opportunity and stuff you'd never think about, but it's science and it's applying production knowledge to the betterment of mankind. I love it. I love that. And um, a while back, you mentioned about, you know, um, operations and any book. Uh, it took me a few years uh, to find a, a two books that I want to mention to you. But, but on your end, any book that really helped you when you think about operations of a business? Uh, yeah. Uh, I've been an avid business reader and I, I love to read business books. And in fact, the last 10 or 15 years, that's where a lot of my business uh, experiences have been generated is uh, business books. And when I really go back and look at the ones that are really influenced my life and our core value books today are the writings of Stephen Covey. Okay. And uh, to me, his seven habits of highly effective people, principle-centered leadership, uh, you know, those are really fundamental. And I would say anybody that hasn't read those two books should endeavor to understand those principles, then not only read them, but apply them. And, and so for me, that was something that just became part of our fabric. And so when we told people to sharpen the saw, they knew that was the seventh habit or to be proactive. That was the habit number one or to start with the end in mind, you know, those became core values that could be communicated to people to establish this common fabric and, and expectations. And, and so those would be the ones that I'd probably highlight. I love it. Yeah. I've read the first one, probably need to read it again. Uh, but then the second one, I haven't read it. So I'll definitely take a look at that one. For me, what two books that really opened my eyes, one was, it's called Traction. Uh, by Gino, I want to say his last name is Wickman. Uh, and then the other one is the E-Myth uh, Revisited about the myth of uh, entrepreneurship and, and a small business, you know, how to, and, and they go over that. The first one talks about KPIs and people and, and, and the data and weekly meetings, which I know most of us don't like it, but I, I believe a one hour weekly meeting has some benefits for some things. And It does. Absolutely. It does. Right. Yep. Th those sorts of things. Those are, I have not read those, but they do sound good. You know, I've enjoyed the good, the great, uh, the dysfunctions of a team. And some of those kind of books are excellent case study opportunities. And, uh, you know, one of the real fundamental management team activities is uh, to identify a book as a group and then 
study it together and learn the principles and then help each other apply them. Wow. And that's where application really happens, you know. Right. To me, you read for application right. and not enjoy them. Oh. And if, if, if it doesn't stick, you really haven't gained much. And so you say, how do I take the principles and incorporate them into my fabric and into my life and my personality? Right. I completely agree. Like education without action is it doesn't worth anything. And yeah, well, in you know, life we don't get to the point where we have to take an exam to get our grades so we can move on. You know, every day we move on, and so we don't get a grade, but we we really have to stop and ask ourselves: Are we progressing? And are we are we learning at a rate faster than we're forgetting? Right. Yeah. I've, yeah. Good. That's a great way to. To wrap up today here, Dr. Palman, really I enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks for your service and thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. You know, you're a paradigm buster, the way that you've gone about your business and the way you're getting people to network and communicate and share. Thank you. It's an absolute contribution to the industry. So keep up your good work. Yeah. Your, your words uh, are very uh, appreciated, Dr. Palman. So, We'll be in touch here soon, and uh, uh, thanks a lot. Give that little guy a hug for me, will you, from Grandpa Steve? <laughs> I will. I will do it. He's five Take months care. five months now. and uh, Oh, that's a fun stage. I know. We're yeah. trying to figure out how to make him sleep through the night, you know, still, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, we have a grandson that's a year and a half old, and he is just such a delightful little guy. And, you know, we have him clear as old as 22 as well, but. At the same time, uh, it's really fun to see him go from that one-year-old to two-year-old. The learning is so exponential, you know, right. and their vocabulary comes and their habits become, and you see their personality develop. And yes. It's it's a fun, fun stage. So yes. enjoy it while you can, Dad. I will. Thanks a you lot. Grow up really fast. Yes, that's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's great experience. <laughs> great experience. Thanks a lot. Have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Good talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.